0: This is the second episode on Fatal Accident Act, in which we are going to be talking about financial dependency claims.
1: You're listening to the Civil Lawcast, a regular series on issues of interest and developments in civil law, brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers.
0: Hello, I'm Emily Formby from 39 Essex Chambers, and I'm here with Romilly Cummerson, also of 39 Essex Chambers, for another episode of Civil Lawcast. Hi, Romany. Hello. So in this, we're going to be looking at a bit of a roundup on who can make claims uh, and then moving into issues of dependency and what dependency claims look like. So the first thing to look at is dependents, as in those who are able to make the dependency claims. And uh, that is really a statutory list of which there is uh, no discretion whatsoever, um, although that hasn't stopped there being uh, some litigation on the issue in the past. The fundamental rule is um, of relationships of sanguinity and co-sanguinity, which is um, a great phrase that I like to use uh, as often as possible, not my phrase, but uh, not something one can slip into everyday conversation too often. Uh, and that really uh, in- in covers all of the notions you might have of, of family units, but is broader than an immediate family unit. So it means mothers, fathers, children, uh, but also grandparents, grandchildren, uh, nieces, nephews, anyone who can show either an actual or a likely um, well, no, on balance of probabilities likely, but future dependency uh, on somebody's earnings will be able to have a dependency claim as a dependent. Um, and now, just a, a reminder, when I'm emphasising earnings, that's because that's what we're talking about in this episode. And in an earlier episode, we've looked at other areas of claims and care claims. Um, uh, outside those immediate and obvious relationships, there is also the cohabitation rule, known generally as the two-year rule. And Romilly will tell us a bit about that.
1: Yes. Uh, in order to claim a dependency as a cohabitee, You have to have been living with the deceased in the same household, not necessarily the same house, but the same household immediately before the date of the death. You also have to have been living with the deceased for at least two years before that date and for the whole of that period as the husband or wife or civil partner of the deceased. It's quite an an old fashioned phrase, isn't it? In determining who fits within that rule, and the courts have acknowledged that this is fact-sensitive and the key word is household, not house. So the court recognises that there are many different ways to set up a household or a family unit Um, and you don't necessarily have to be living under the same roof, Uh, although obviously that is one of the key ways in which a a relationship tie can be manifested. Um, But the key there is, are you tied by your relationship? Have you been for a period of at least two years as husband or wife or civil partner.
0: It's right to say there's no time limit for being married. And so one of the anomalies that you quite often see is, unfortunately, in the armed forces, uh, there's uh, quite a high rate of young people that might otherwise not die dying. Um, and actually, as a uh, somebody about to go off to war, um, often the best thing a, 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 a young Uh, a young person can do is marry their sweetheart just before they go uh, because you only need to be married for five minutes um, uh, and your dependency claim is secured whereas if you've been taking your time and uh, living together and enjoying your um, uh, last few years before you settle down and have uh, not quite made the two-year the two-year limit then you have no claim
1: well, yes. And in fact, you can actually establish eligibility as a spouse, even if your marriage takes place after the tortious act that subsequently leads to death. So, for example, if a person has discovered they've developed mesothelioma as a result of exposure and employment, they can get, get married um, in that period between um, the, the tort and the death. And, that, and that's perfectly
0: acceptable. So a deathbed marriage will give you eligibility straight away? Yes. It's uh, sadly one of the other anomalies of this list Um, is the child of a surviving unmarried partner uh, doesn't count as a dependent even if they're living as a family unit so more commonly that would be um, if somebody who had been acting in the role of a father uh, was uh, suffered a tortious act such that they they died um, but they were not married to the mother of the child even though the child saw uh, the deceased as, as his father had been brought up as that, uh, they don't under the law um, of the Fatal Accident Act have a dependency claim. But it's right to say, uh, in my view, this is a um, uh, an anomaly that often is overlooked when it comes to uh, the kind of reality of settling claims, which is the way most of this litigation goes. Uh, while it might not necessarily um, have the force of the Act, uh, certainly in claims that I've been involved in, challenges have been mounted successfully with reference to the Human Rights Act. So just in the way that uh, the cohabitee of more than two years uh, challenged the uh, legality of the bereavement rules that um, until the case of Smith uh, prevented them being um, a, um, a on the list of bereavement damages, so too the challenge of uh, being brought up as a child uh, without that blood relationship. Um, has been used to challenge the dependency of the so-called the unmarried stepchild, um, and certainly I've had claims when such a claimant has succeeded in in bringing the claim as being a dependent within the family unit, uh, and the real change of that would really be the percentage of dependency, which we'll come on to in a minute, um, but changing that dependency fraction from a sixty-six percent to a seventy-five percent to include uh, the engagement of the child.
1: Yes, that's been my experience as well. I mean, as we have discussed in relation to services dependency, foster children um, aren't included on the list of dependents. And we looked at the case of Witham and Steve Hill in, in relation to services. Um, on the basis of that case, I know that Kemp posits that adopted children also not included technically within the list. But I don't know about you, Emily, but I, I find it hard to imagine a defendant running that argument against uh, an adopted
0: child that's been a member of a family for a period of time i i would i would think that's right because of course one of the arguments for excluding foster children is the fact that there is a payment from um the local authority that covers the very cost of bringing up that child so not only is there an income to the family unit but there is a a, a fee for providing this effectively the services or um, uh, the daily needs um, of that foster child while they're in that that home and therefore um, their dependency is outside the budget of the of the ordinary family in a way that once you're adopted just isn't the case so i agree with you woman i think that would be a very difficult thing for a defendant to challenge
1: and we've mentioned the case there of, of smith and lancashire teaching hospitals in, in relation to the challenge to the narrow category for bereavement um, but of course there's another um, similarly named case of swift and the secretary of state for justice um in which the two-year rule for cohabitees was challenged on the basis it was alleged to have been incompatible with articles 8 and 14 of the european convention on human rights and on that occasion and the court of appeal rejected an extension of the list in relation to a services dependency um, and found that it, the that parliament had a wide margin of discretion in relation to the legislative choices that it made in enacting section 13 of the 1976 act um, And really endorse the fact that it was a legitimate aim to try to confine the right to recover damages to those who did have relationships with some degree of permanence and dependence. And the two-year cohabitation requirement that had been chosen was a proportionate pursuit of that aim. So an unsuccessful challenge in relation to um, the inequalities between the married and the cohabiting in relation to the financial dependency.
0: And I think the the way to understand that decision is to recognise that that was looking at court having... Um, to apply the decision of Parliament, which was what do we allow to come within the realms of those who are able to claim, given that until the statute of the Fatal Accident Act, there was no common law claim for those who had died at all. All claims ended with death, and therefore Parliament decided to allow those, uh, allow some claims to be made. And the court has to interpret that. And the interpretation of extending a list of dependents, which was rejected, was on the basis that Parliament had considered what it thought to be suitable and decided that a two year cohabitation period of time was required in order to give that uh, relationship stability um, and, and a sufficient dependency to bring it within uh, what parliament had in mind whereas uh, as you rightly say the the similarly named case um dealing with the uh, extension of the bereavement act um so the similarly named case of smith which deals with the bereavement act said that why that was extended as a list was because bereavement and dependency weren't compatible one with another and so given that parliament had thought two-year cohabitation was enough to bring you within those who were dependent there was no logic for and no reasonableness for you being dependent but not bereaved Um, and therefore they essentially included bereavement within parliament's compass uh, rather than changing parliament's thinking altogether.
1: Yes and so we've looked at who's on the statutory list but as we all know relationships can be very complicated Um, and that means that determining whether or not a particular claimant fits into one of the definitions of a dependent isn't always as straightforward as the legislators might have imagined when writing the legislation Um, and I think it can result in quite intrusive inquiries needing to be made on occasion to determine for example with cohabitees whether two people have been living quotes as husband and wife could be very intrusive um, but even in cases where the claimant and the deceased are or have been married it's not necessarily a straightforward exercise so, so for example emily what happens when a husband and wife are separated or divorced or perhaps even have been divorced but subsequently reconciled
0: so i think there probably you're talking about a couple of cases i'll i'll look at one of them which is um um daziel and donald uh which is a unpleasant um set of circumstances um because it, it um, belies, as so often these cases do, so much heartache behind the scenes. Essentially the deceased was um, having an affair um, even before he got married and his poor wife discovered um, he was having an affair at the same time that um, he died in that he was killed in a road traffic accident, he was on a motorbike and suddenly the um, uh, pillion passenger happened to be his girlfriend. Uh, so she lost her husband and found out that he was having an affair and had been doing so for many years. Um, before, um, at at the same moment. Uh, The defendant in that case challenged the dependency claim, Uh, the widow had a child, Um, the girlfriend had no dependency and and accepted that extraordinarily she didn't know that there was a wife either and she would have immediately broken off the relationship had she known. Um, But the challenge to the wife's dependency was mounted on the basis that um, firstly there was uh, actually not a great prospect um, that the marriage would have survived given his behaviour Um, And secondly, uh, perhaps even bolder, that he was very selfish and only spent a small amount of money on his family, and therefore the usual dependency rate should be displaced. Um, The way the court dealt with it in the round uh, was to uh, say, well, at the time of death, he didn't spend very much on the family, but that wouldn't have continued for long, and therefore the 75% dependency rate uh, was adopted and and utilised, however the multiplier was reduced, As in the period of years over which that dependency would have lasted to reflect the fact uh, that it is quite likely the marriage uh, would have founded um, uh, while the child was still a dependent and and during their lifetime.
1: And with a slightly more positive view on relationships in the next couple of cases, um, you've got Shepherd and Post Office. And that was a case in which the, the claimant had been married to the deceased. They had been divorced and she'd remarried to another person, but subsequently returned to live with the deceased before his death. Now, he, she was still, in fact, married to her second husband at the time of the deceased's death. And the defendant argued that she was neither a wife nor a former wife for the purposes of the act because she'd ceased to be the deceased former wife when she remarried and her entitlement to financial support came to an end. And they also argued that although she had returned to live with him, as they hadn't been living together for two years, she couldn't bring herself within the cohabite rule either. And the court rejected that argument um, and and this finding was upheld on appeal that the term former wife is wide enough to include a former wife who had in fact remarried. Uh, Of course she still has to then go on and prove an actual dependency in terms of a reasonable expectation of dependency Um, but
0: uh, she did fall within the category of former wife for the purposes of the act. I suppose the fact that she'd returned to be living with him um, was a fairly good indication that at least... um, But at some time in the future, there would have been some expectation of dependency.
1: Absolutely. And a similar case, got Hayes and the South East Coast Ambulance Service. And in that one, the claimant and the deceased had been married uh, for six years. They then got divorced and had been divorced for four years before his death. Um, However, the court accepted the claimant's evidence that at the time of the death, they'd in fact been in the process of reconciling and had resumed an intimate relationship and were discussing the prospect of remarrying. Um, The court in that case said what you have to do is apply a two-stage test, and that was first set out in the case of Davies and Taylor. Step one is to decide whether whether there is a significant chance, as opposed to a merely speculative possibility, of reconciliation. And that chance can be less than 50%, as long as it's not um, speculative. If that chance exists, you go on to stage two, which then you make an assessment of the prospects of reconciliation in percentage terms, and the award for dependency is adjusted accordingly. So in that particular case, um, the judge decided that there was in fact a 90% prospect of reconciliation Um, But he also took into account that because the marriage had failed once due to the husband's infidelity, there was a risk that that might happen again and there was a 10% risk that the relationship would subsequently fail. So damages were awarded at 80% of the full dependency because there's a 10% risk that they won't get back together at all and then a 10% risk that if they do, it would fail. So you get
0: 80% of the claim. I have to say, when you look at that, it is a fairly torturous um, series of uh, hoops that everyone's gone through in order to reach that. Uh, Absolutely. To, uh, it does sort of slightly smack of applying logic to um, a state of, of some chaos and trying to come up with, as we always try to do, some sort of sensible reconciliation. Um, and um, obviously that is a, um, a, a judicial decision um, that can be relied upon. But I think I would... Um, certainly warn against a sort of mechanistic approach to saying, right, here's the case of Hayes and let's uh, let's do exactly the same again. Um, I mean, of course, what, what that, Davidson Taylor, what that logic would um, could anticipate is if there was a significant but less than 50% chance of reconciliation, uh, then of course you could only end up with 40% of damages if that was the percentage that it was decided that prospect of reconciliation would turn out to be. Um, and um, I'm sure that, um, while the, it's difficult for a defendant to uh, necessarily challenge or choose to challenge the extent to which um, a relationship was uh, uh, intimately reconciled or quite what the process of reconciliation would be, um, you may well, be, may well find that there's a sort of opening up of, uh, depending obviously on the value of the claim and, and therefore the cost implications of investigating the same, um, some sort of digging around into one's background. Um, Not just the usual financial um, attempt to look at um, accounts and businesses, which we'll come on to in a minute, particularly with um, family businesses, uh, but also into family circumstances. Uh, But but it does highlight one of the real problems for defendants in cases such as this, which is really more than perhaps um, in a normal personal injury claim or a more common personal injury claim. Uh, the difficulty of challenging the propositions put forward by the claimant, um, since there is so much um, um, assertion of, of intimacy or s- assertion of familial relationships upon which percentages are then put to translate it into um, a, a sort of fiscal certainty um, uh, that, that really coming up with an evidential basis to dislodge those assumptions can be very difficult indeed.
1: Absolutely, and it it's, it's clear that that's... What happened for the defendant in Hayes? You come up against somebody who's giving evidence of, of a relationship that that she is saying she was putting back together, and there's not really an awful lot you can do about that. Not a lot you can you oh, can no. produce to gainsay that. Um, certainly, one of those sets of circumstances where you're going to need to have a broad range of rewards for
0: negotiation. I think that's right, and of course, in in a case when you still have a living participant or a living claimant, um, the, you, there are possibilities of, uh, for example, a, a level of, of injury that's claimed, there's a possibility of surveillance or investigation to see what's unfolding. But of course, when you have a uh, uh, one party who's deceased, there's no opportunity uh, to see what the relationship was like, because of course, um, you've got the survivor reporting on something that has of necessity ended.
1: Yes, absolutely. So once we've decided whether or not someone falls within the category of dependents, we then have to decide whether there is in fact a dependency. Um, so as we've mentioned, there's no requirement to demonstrate um, that the eligible dependent was in fact in receipt of a pecuniary advantage at the time of the deceased death. And that comes from the case of Taffville, Railway and Jenkins. Um, it's sufficient to show a reasonable expectation of a pecuniary benefit. And the level of proof for that expectation is a substantial possibility, i.e. it's more likely than not. Um, And and that comes from Davies and Taylor.
0: So that's the case we just mentioned earlier in relation to um, the Hayes test. Um, And that's really what we were going back to before. When you're looking at your list of dependents, um, you've got to look at who they are, what their relationship is, uh, but also the possibility of dependency. Uh, That can be unborn children um so you can have an unborn child that obviously would have had a dependency on their deceased parent that well father um that they've never actually met um and also um um, as uh, as we've mentioned it could be uh, wider family members who have an anticipated um, expectation so uh grandchildren um who have an anticipated Dependency on grandparents when they were at school age who would have been doing babysitting or um, child after school care or indeed older parents who um, may have had maybe fit and well at the time, but as they reached their more senior years would have relied on their family member um, to provide care services as they reach their um, twilight years, which they have been robbed of. Um, so those kinds of dependencies. Uh, with a substantial possibility, can be looked at. And of course, there are slightly more esoteric ones. Um, there are cases of family members saying, well, at the point that I got married, I would have had um, a lump sum dependency, but I would have received um, within the family unit um, um, a, a sum of money at the point of marriage that I won't now get, um, or I would have um, had children in the future and the deceased would have provided grandparenting services for me um, and that has now been robbed. Of course, all of those, the more remote those possibilities become, then you run the risk of having a discount for saying, well, actually, you know, it's your intention to be in a settled relationship and have children and have three children and relied on your now deceased mum to provide grandparenting services but of course that's a loss of a chance or a loss of a prospect rather than something that's a reality so you're not prevented from bringing those claims um, with that um, sense of expectation and possibility but the more esoteric or the more remote or the more and the greater the number of steps before it becomes a reality uh, the more likely it is that that sum will at the very least have to be discounted uh, in by percentage terms um, if it's not sufficiently fanciful that it becomes discounted entirely. Uh, another
1: controlling factor for the financial dependency is that you have to be able to show that the lost, the loss arises from the relationship of dependency. Um, the classic example given of that is the case of Burgess and Florence Nightingale Hospital for Gentlewomen, which is another absolutely fantastic name. <laughs> I love it. I
0: know. I do. I do love the Burgesses. It's just one of those sweet things And I have to say, I think it's a bit unfair as mm. well. I think it's a rather unfair decision. But, but we should we probably tell people, um, I always think of the people who they are and what they did. So,
1: um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> in Burgess, the, d- the deceased was the dancing partner of the claimant as well as the spouse. <laughs> um, and suffered a loss of, of income as a result of, of not being able to dance professionally um, with his professional partner. Um, and the court found that that particular loss was not recoverable because it would have been the same whether they'd been married or not if the dancing partner had died. And the loss arose from a professional relationship and not from the relationship of dependency and not from the spousal relationship. So that's the classic example. Of course, These days, determining which losses arise out of a dependency and which fall outside the loss can be a little bit more complicated than just a dancing partnership, particularly where we have family businesses, where there's a real mixing of personal and professional relationships. And that's an issue we're going to come back to when we're considering assessment of financial dependency in the context of wealth creators. Um, But it has become rather more complicated, I think.
0: I do feel that if we had Mr. and Mrs. Burgess on our books now or uh, Mr. Burgess had survived, they wouldn't just be sort of waltzing in some kind of... I was thinking of them in a palm court in the skies. Um, I think one would have a shot at saying that they had a family business and that there was a wealth Hmm. creating and there was something very special about that relationship because the sort of the magical chemistry on the dance floor couldn't simply be replicated by any old foxtrotter. I know, and we all Um, all now
1: know from Strictly Come Dancing that they're all married these dancing partners. They're all
0: married. <laughs> not only are they all married, but on the other hand, they're not necessarily as. Um, uh, very, Big percentage
1: uh... reductions for anyone oh. appearing on Strictly. That's true.
0: <laughs> High degrees of lack mm. of fidelity, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, which brings us neatly to section three and remarriage. <laughs> <laughs> So, section three of the Fatal Absent Act um, is another uh, classic, a classic example of 1976 legislation not being perhaps as uh, equal to um, um, all genders as we may now wish. Uh, it specifically rules out taking account of the fact or prospect of a widow remarrying. Nothing for widowers and um there we are because um the women are the dependents uh is, is the thinking behind mm. it and in in a way in this little section underlines the practical problems with um fatal accident claims in the modern world which is it works absolutely perfectly um for a um communal garden whether it was ever common or garden but a kind of um perceived um single unit family uh with uh, one woman and one man Uh, that are married ideally have 2.4 children um, and in which the man goes out to work Uh, the woman does not work, Uh, the man has a weekly salary, ideally uh, in in a brown paper envelope, all of which is spent at the end of every week. Um, If you should come across such a family unit, the Fatal Accident Act will be a paradigm that fits you precisely, and you won't need to listen any further. Um, But unfortunately, um, uh, life twas ever uh, more messy, certainly is more muddled these days. Um, But this Section 3 provision is an exact example of um, where perhaps a little um, spring clean of the Act wouldn't uh, go amiss uh, and um, probably falls foul of the Human Rights Act. I mean, just as the challenge to the Cohabitee um, proposition, um, um, and indeed it should be noted that the only significant amendment that has been made to the Fatal Accident Act has been to recognise uh, that marriage now uh, can include single sex relationships as well as. Um, uh to genders and indeed uh that you can have uh, civil partnerships as well so civil partnerships and um marriage and all its forms are uh expressly uh, included under the act when of course they didn't exist in 76 uh, but uh for example section three hasn't been um um has it been up, uh, 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 um, updated um and you know does it fall for the human rights act? oh i think we can answer that pretty clearly in the affirmative um but again um because we're all very good at pragmatically working around these difficulties uh there's a pretty straightforward well there's a potential way to deal with the difficulty uh, via section four and disregarding benefits that arise um out of the death so section four is the great um, caveat in the Fatal Accident Act uh, which which uh, requires any benefit that is arisen as a result of the death um, to be disregarded when you calculate any form of damages and again in the perfect paradigm um, that was really clearly intended to be insurance results so if you if you receive an insurance windfall um, as a result of death you don't have to discount damages received to reflect it but it has been used and indeed applies correctly um, to a far far wider range of issues Um, and one of them being um uh we would say a way of dealing with um disregarding uh the consequences um of 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 remarriage or or non-remarriage because clearly that's something that's going to have arisen after death and any benefit that arises from that should be disregarded. Uh, a case um, of Stanley and Sadiq uh, in 91 um, looks at this, again, they're all such upsetting circumstances. A child brought a claim because his mother was de- had died um, and his father had remarried. Um, it was held and sort of is stated in the judgment that the new wife, the stepmother, Uh, provided a far better service to the child than his birth mother had done lovely i know i know i know i mean not only the whole um anyway the evaluation anyway there we are let's leave that to one side and simply draw from it what we can um, they disregarded the benefit of the new, I mean, the service is the term used, but the, the, the care provided by the wife. Um, the, it was recognised that it was better than the care provided by the deceased, but it was disregarded um, under Section 4, um, although the amount of services the child recovered were reduced uh, because his mum wasn't up to much um so the uh, level of services he would have had was reduced to reflect her poor services but the fact that he was getting a greater benefit uh, was um disregarded
1: and um Moving on to contributory negligence, that is um, a factor to be taken into account under the Fatal Accidents Act, as with um, more standard person injury claims. So under Section 5, where a deceased is partly responsible for his or her own death, um, and and if an action were brought for the benefit of the estate, then damages would be reduced to reflect that contribution, then the Fatal Accidents Act damages for dependency will also be reduced to a proportionate extent. As with any standard personal injury claim, determining the appropriate contribution isn't a matter of strict causation alone. It involves an assessment of both the causative potency and the blameworthiness of the deceased negligent act or omission. So, for example, we've got the case of Blackmore and the Department for Communities and Local Government. And that was a case where the deceased had died of lung cancer. And that was partly due to asbestos exposure and partly due to his um, smoking habit. The expert evidence produced by the defendant was that smoking had in fact contributed 85% to his risk of lung cancer. but And, and they argued um, that on that basis, the uh, deduction for contributory negligence should be 85%. But the judge held, and this was upheld on, on appeal, that the expert findings didn't translate directly to an assessment of contributory negligence because there were other factors in play. And he had to take into account blameworthiness and the historical lack of awareness of the dangers of smoking and um, the fact that the um, deceased had attempted to, to stop smoking. He'd started smoking long before he knew it was dangerous and had attempted to stop but obviously was addicted at that point. Um, the court also took into account um, the the blameworthiness of the defendant in terms of exposing the deceased to asbestos and that that should be given far more weight um, than the, the deceased's own blameworthiness in terms of continuing smoking. So in fact, the deduction for, con- for contributory negligence on that case was just 30%. Um, and as I say, the Court of Appeal upheld that, said so that was well within the bounds of what was reasonable.
0: So essentially we can pretty much just take on the chin that contributing negligence acts in the usual way Absolutely. Um, and your balance of factors obviously you have to have a claim in the first place um, so the claimant has to get over the hurdle um, of there being a dependency um, before you can look at contributing negligence mm. um, and you might have a more sort of equal balance if it was something to do with for example in a road traffic accident um, and you've got the dependent who um, is, is involved in the driving or whatever because of course with the asbestos and uh, uh it's generally an employment situation when the um person who who has the lung cancer very little control over their circumstances but essentially for now um we can just um, it, it's a wrap it up in the way that contributing negligence applies as always once a percentage is reached it's applied across the board um, and therefore the fact that the deceased has contributed to their death doesn't save the dependent The dependent loses some of their damages um, but it's the, the usual way of looking at it Um, uh, uh, course of potency and blameworthiness, and this is a really good example, are pretty key determinants. Mm. Um, But having said all of those factors apart, we've now got our dependence, we've got our dependency, we've got our claims. So how is that dependency on earnings assessed? Well, very helpfully, there are no prescriptive rules on identifying or calculating (laughs) a
1: financial dependency. So that means the court really does have a very wide discretion when it... it comes to its approach on on assessment. Um, Convention has developed via case law with regard to the sort of simpler cases where the deceased earned a salary, if we can put it that way. So the classic case is Harris and Empress Motors. Um, And on the basis of that case, there's an assumption that a person in a relationship without children will spend a third of their income on themselves and contribute the remaining 66% to the household. So that's the dependency. And where there are children in the household, the percentage attributed to personal expenditure is reduced to 25%, leaving a 75% dependency. Now, I think my parents <laughs> would certainly that. dispute the idea that they ever kept 25% for themselves
0: when <laughs> we were little, but that's another oh, no, matter. No. I was going to say that that's that kind of classic, isn't it? You've got a third for yourself, a third for the house, a third for your partner, or 25%. I mean, not only can we be pretty confident that most people spend more than 25% or even a third of their salary on a mortgage if they're fortunate enough to have one, um, the idea that there's still that much left over for yourself is, um, yeah, is pretty rare. Um, It's right to say um, that... Both the 66 and the 75% are displaceable assumptions. It is an assumption only. Um, and you can uh, bring to bear all of the um, uh, receipts, income, expenditure, um, if you should wish to as a claimant, to try and evaluate a better percentage. Um, it's also right to say that it's become um, fairly common um, for claimants with no kind of uh, better excuse but to say life's all really rather more expensive to start off a schedule with probably an 80% if there's a family or I've seen up to 90% as a family just pleaded as a percentage. The the the, the sort of um, benefit of that approach is saying well as we know with Howard it's all very difficult to work out exactly what you do and we can all pretty much accept that um, only uh, 25% mortgage or 25% help yourself or 66% for yourself is a bit unlikely. On the other hand, the whole proposition is um, of having a percentage or displace it with evidence. Um, so um, um, I think there are sort of varieties of approaches, but it's it's right to say that very often a claim is, is mounted in that way um, as a negotiating tactic to start yes. off with. I don't know what you, your experience no, abso- is Roman
1: absolutely and as you say I think particularly in, in the southeast of the country the idea that you that you could get away with um reserving 25% to yourself given the cost of housing is is really not
0: realistic. Although I have to say I've never seen a claim mounted um, the opposite way around, which is uh, we're a family unit where we we owned our house um, and we have no mortgage left. We've managed to pay it all off um, and therefore uh, actually the deceased was spending 50 or 60 percent on himself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, not a, not a and, popular and the relation... argument that one. <laughs> 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 no. And actually, I suppose there's no reason why you couldn't displace that assumption and put it the other way around, should you say wish and say, well, actually, I mean, I suppose um, the, the Zealand Donald, they said, well, it's only 40% dependency because he was feckless, uh, but not that actually you've paid off so much or are sufficiently well off that um, uh, you kept much more for yourself. No. Anyway, once you've got that dependency level, there's also a, a workaround of Cowd and Comex holder diving when you have a two-income family. Um, and the way that that works is um, if you've still got a surviving partner who are also working, you effectively add the two incomes together, apply your percentage reduction, and then remove the totality of the survivor's income, uh, because that's still coming into the household. And that those two ways around, either the straight percentage or uh, the percentage of the entirety of the income minus the remaining income provide um, the multiplicand upon which uh, you then make your calculations of dependency Uh, and of course the really important thing to remember about dependency is however many dependents there are however many claims there are um, you have to uh, all come within the compass of what that multi, multiple can would be. So how much money there was to be divvied up, however it was to be divvied up. So just as we were talking about in the early episode with services, you can have as many services as you like, they have to be encompassed within the time available. Uh, in dependency, you can have as many dependents as can come within the boundaries, but it has to be encompassed within the amount of money there was to be divided up amongst them. Now again, coming on to wealth creators, that may be difficult, but within the paradigm of a straightforward weekly income, it, it makes some logical sense.
1: Yes. So we're, as you say, we're going to go on to talk about wealth creators, but that sticking with the sort of simpler cases at the moment, we then, we've got our multiplicand and we now have to look at how to calculate the multiplier. And um, We always used to calculate the multiplier from the date of death. But that, of course, meant that uh, the claimant would suffer a discount for early receipt of money when, in fact, they, they hadn't actually received the money until after trial. So that resulted in undercompensation in most cases. And quite rightly, that situation has been resolved by the case of Knauer and the Ministry of Justice. I have to say, I'm never sure whether that K is silent. Knauer or Nauer I don't know. I think it's Now. I think that's
0: probably right. Shall we go Let's with go
1: Nauer? with Nauer But it's easier for people to look up if I put the
0: Kna on the front. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, and lots of people do do a t- <coughs> So, knawa, anyway, knawa, and the Ministry um, anyway, of Justice. Everyone ought to know this yes. by now because it's a little, it's nearly five it years is. old. But so, since um, that case. We'll say knawa. Yes. You say Kanawa.
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> that, that, since knawa, we calculate the multiplier from the date of trial in line with all, all of the personal injury claims, although a discounting factor is applied to take into account the risk of death
0: between the date of actual death and the date of trial. And of course, it's now sufficiently old that this is an obdonate. Uh, which has uh, come out the entire the glory of the Ogden tables have now completely taken it on board uh, and they've got the discounting factors um, uh, built into the table so it's much easier to look up oddly enough um, there is a different discount between um, if you look at um, uh, the period of death to the date of calculation um, than if you look at Uh, from the date of calculation to the date of trial um, because actuarially it makes a difference if you want to understand why uh, i would commend to you uh, the entirety of the introduction (laughs) of the alternate tables Um, for practical application all you need to know is that there are two tables you need to look up to make adjustments and it is different between uh, for the period before between date of death and date of calculation and there's a separate table for date of calculation to date of trial. Excellent. Mm-hmm. So having achieved that, <laughs> <laughs> you now have your um, multiplicand and you have your multiplier. Um, and indeed, when you look into the future, um, it's it, it's dealt with in the same way as you would anticipate Um, in a personal injury claim, uh, you look at the period of time for the dependency. um, The dependency will obviously uh, adjust um, when you have children who become non-dependent and looking into the future, it will end either with the ending of the dependency or with the previously anticipated, as in the full um, anticipated life length of the deceased, whichever is the shorter, uh, because you can't be dependent on someone who would have been dead anyway. Um, And most of the time for dependency, you're looking at earnings, so you're going to be focusing on length of time they would have been earning for and relating your dependency to that period of time. And again, we're not going to have a long lecture on multipliers, but you'll be looking at apportioning that um, amongst the stages. Um, that may be uh, a matter for a different kind of podcast and a different episode on a different day.
1: Well, that seems like a good moment to take a break. In the next episode on financial dependency, we're going to be taking a slightly closer look at the section four, Disregards, and um, the difficult question of how to assess loss of financial dependency on a wealth creator. But for now, it's time to say goodbye. Bye. Thanks, Romilly. Bye. Thanks for listening. At 39 Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com, where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars.